All right, good morning, Grace. Okay. Hey, I read some uh, good advice this week uh, on the secret of a really good sermon. I should have read it a long time ago. Uh, it's from George Burns, okay? Now, I realize if you're under 40, you have no idea who George Burns is, but anyway, here's his advice. He says, the key to a really good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending, and then to keep them as close together as possible. Okay. Well, I'm not sure we've always followed that advice here at Grace, um, but I think we'd all agree on the importance of having a really good beginning and a really good ending, okay, be it a sermon, uh, a movie, a book, a speech, whatever. And we've probably all had that experience of getting to the end of a good book and just feeling so satisfied with the ending. Right, you know, you, you, you read that last page and you, you, know, you close the back cover and, and you just sit there in meditative reverie of the beauty of what you've just experienced, right? For example, for me, okay, the epilogue to J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter no, uh, The Sorcerer's Stone. What's the full title? Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Is that it? Okay. Oh. Okay, when Dumbledore okay, is explaining to Harry okay, how his mother died to save him. And that sacrifice of love still exerts a power protecting Harry. Wow. That's not just a good ending. That's good theology. Right? Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, for me anyway, is the ending to My Fair Lady. Okay? Um, this is an absolutely splendid musical. Okay? Great songs, a terrific story with substantive theme. Can we really change other people? Oh. Whose ending? is so abominable. It, it, just, it just ruins the whole thing for me, okay? If you're not familiar with it, you know, Professor Henry Higgins has treated Eliza Doolittle just abysmally all throughout this film, and at the end, she comes crawling back to him, and the movie ends with him leaning back, you know, in his easy chair, smugly saying, Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? <laughs> I mean, okay, if that were my daughter, okay, I'd hope she would, okay, fetch his slippers and then clobber the jerk with them, <laughs> tip over his tea, scalding him, and then just slam the door on the way out. Okay? I'd rewrite it. And speaking of endings that many would rewrite if they could. There's Mark's gospel. And what the elders have asked me to do this morning essentially is to address the question, 
where the devil is the ending of Mark? All right? So this feels pretty weird for me because it's Sunday morning. I'm in church. I'm at the pulpit, but I'm not actually preaching a sermon. All right? Okay? Now, there will be a message this morning, okay? And it is the most important message you will ever hear. It's the story of the death, the suffering, the resurrection of Jesus, okay? If you disregard and disagree with everything I say here, okay, but you listen to the story that follows, I'll be happy, okay? Because the gospel is what matters, not whatever you happen to believe about the epilogue to the gospel. Okay, are you with me? All right. Now, I'm guessing some of you are probably thinking to yourself, uh, whew, what in the world is he talking about? Okay, fair enough. Um, if you look at the end of Mark, most of your Bibles will have a footnote at the end of verse 8 or maybe verse 20 that says something to the effect of the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't include these verses, that is 9 through 20. Sometimes it's separated, like in this Bible I'm holding this morning, it's separated from verse 8. Sometimes it's in brackets and stuff like that. Well, that reflects the perspective of contemporary biblical scholarship, okay, evangelical and non-evangelical alike, that verses 9 through 20 were added later by a scribe who didn't really like the way Mark ended his gospel, okay? And they were afraid. That's how verse eight ends, all right? Um, let me read a bit more, um, starting from verse five. As they entered the tomb, the women, saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting uh, at the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, ending the gospel, okay, the good news, uh, with trembling, terrified women who are telling no one about the empty tomb is not, is a rather unsettling, okay, way to end the story. So, historically, there have been three positions on what happened here, okay? And right now, I'm putting on my professor hat, all right, okay? I'm giving you a lecture. Um, the first position maintains, hey, there isn't any problem here. Mark ended his gospel at verse 20, and by the way, that's what most manuscripts read. Okay, now, I don't have time to interact extensively with this position or the others, and of course I'd violate George Burns' principle on a good sermon, um, but I'm gonna make a couple observations, all right? First, the oldest, most reliable manuscripts that we possess do not contain these verses, 
Moreover, we have ancient biblical scholars like Jerome, historians like Eusebius, who tell us, you know, in their day, fourth, fifth century, most manuscripts and the best manuscripts do not contain these verses. This ending seems to have been created in the second century, okay, and it was in the manuscript that made it to Constantinople, where Constantine, the first Christian emperor, okay, was, began copying the scriptures okay, in abundance and at state expense. Those were the days, <laughs> right? Okay, so it came to dominate numerically the manuscript tradition, but it seems to be secondary, all right? Okay, another problem with this position that Mark 16, 9 through 20 was actually written by Mark is that these verses are so different stylistically from the rest of Mark. Now, this isn't obvious in English like it is in Greek, but numerous studies have emphasized the, the linguistic and stylistic disparities between Mark 16, 9 through 20 and the rest of Mark so that it's just difficult to maintain, okay, that these verses were written by the same person who wrote the rest of Mark, all right? But why, you may be asking, would anyone add this particular material, okay, to the Gospels? Isn't that dangerous? Yeah, it is. Okay. Well, let's just read these verses, 9 through 20, just so we get some sense of their content, okay? Verse 9. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him uh, and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe her. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country, these returned and reported to the rest, but they did not believe them either. And their stubborn, uh, Mr. Sarpy. Okay, later Jesus appeared to the 11 as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get better. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Now, you may not be too familiar with these verses, but the content probably sounded very familiar, didn't it? Okay, that's because um, this passage is cobbled together from little bits from the endings of the other Gospels and the book of Acts. Okay, the appearance on the road to Emmaus from Luke, the appearance to, of, to Mary Magdalene from John, the Great Commission from Matthew, okay? You see, Mark was the least copied of all the Gospels by a long shot, all right? So scribes got to the end of Mark and knowing how it's supposed to end, being so familiar with Matthew, Luke, and John, they were perplexed. And apparently, 
one of them decided to do something about it, and so he cleverly cannibalized little bits of the other gospel and created a canonical ending to this gospel. Okay, so it's important to keep this in mind. There's no doctrinal issue at stake here. All of this material in 9 through 20 is found elsewhere in Scripture, okay? Even if you are a snake handler from Appalachia, you have other verses you can look up, okay, and support you. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Okay, a second position on the ending of Mark's gospel is that Mark didn't originally end it in verse 8. Actually, there was more, but that final portion got lost. Now, that's conceivable, but very problematic from a text-critical perspective. And by the way, the discipline that studies ancient manuscripts for the purpose of determining the original text is called textual criticism. Not, as I accidentally called it in class a couple years ago, sexual criticism. Okay? That happened. Textual criticism is what we're talking about here, okay? Okay. The problem with this view is that you pretty much have to argue that it must have been the original that lost its final portion before it was ever copied. But the original would have been in a scroll... Okay, not a book like Codex, which didn't develop till, till later. Um, and so the ending would have been rolled up in the center and would have been the most protected portion of the text. Okay? So the argument that the original lost its ending before it was ever copied or that only mutilated copies made it into the second century just strains credulity from a historical perspective. I mean, it's possible, I suppose, but isn't there a better option? Yes, there is. Okay, option number three. The third position, which represents the consensus of biblical scholarship today, is that Mark ended his gospel exactly where the historical evidence seems to indicate. Verse 8, and they were afraid. But how is that possible? Why? Well, if we look at Mark through the lens of literary criticism, what we find is that actually this is, this is quite consistent with Mark's style and effective for his purpose. Now, there's so much that I could say here. I'm going to make just two points, okay? It's often uh, objected that Mark, uh, that his abrupt ending is just, just too out of sync with Matthew, Luke, and John. The other gospels, you know, that have resurrection appearances and, and you know, uh, commissionings of the disciples and, and things like that. Um, yet, okay, this jarring, abrupt uh, manner is quite consistent with Mark's style and is exactly how he began his gospel, quite unlike the other gospel writers, okay? Matthew and Luke have a genealogy, okay? Then a birth narrative, then some nice little stories about Jesus' growing up years, and then 
John the Baptist, okay? John, with his magisterial prologue, takes us back into eternity, past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word was made through him, and the world did not know him. And then, verse 19, the ministry of John the Baptist, okay? Here's how Mark begins his gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Boom, John the Baptist. He doesn't have an introduction. He really just has a section heading. And Mark's narrative continues in this same just-the-facts manner until he gets to his main point, the passion. Then he slows down and tells the story. Okay? Mark just hasn't any time for any of the rest of that, okay? Uh, He gets to the point. So, from a literary critical perspective, Mark ends his gospel exactly how he began it, abrupt and to the point, and that's just characteristic of his style. One more observation in defense of Mark's ending, really. Mark's is the earliest gospel, okay? It's written in the late 50s. Um, To some of the earliest followers of Jesus, the Jesus movement is small, threatened, and viewed with great suspicion by both the Jews and the Romans. In Judea and the Jewish heartland, Christ followers are being thrown out of the synagogues, okay? In Rome, where Mark was likely written, Nero is emperor and nobody is safe, okay? Within a few short years, Nero would be burning Christians alive, setting them up as human torches all throughout Rome in his failed attempt to blame the great fire of Rome on them. Now, In that context, happy endings are just hard to write. So, Mark leaves us with a suspended ending. They were afraid. What happens next is not clear. We have an empty tomb, we have a resurrected Jesus, and we have a trembling community waiting for his promised appearance. Mark's ending, in my view, is not so much abrupt as it is honest. And if you've ever found yourself bewildered, fearful, and wondering where is Jesus in the chaos of your circumstances, I'm guessing Mark's gospel strikes a chord with you. And when I'm sitting in my comfy chair at Starbucks and I read headlines, of Christians being hunted like animals in Iraq and Syria, beheaded in Libya, fleeing their homes as refugees, just trying to survive. I'm reminded that this is the reality of so many believers in the world today, trembling, afraid, waiting for Jesus to appear in the confusion. I'm reminded of Mark's ending 
And I'm thankful. Thankful for his honesty. Because the gospel really is good news. But that doesn't mean all of our endings will be happy. And now we are going to hear the greatest story ever told.